0: This is episode 156 of That Shakespeare Life. Today's episode is brought to you by Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare is the membership arm of That Shakespeare Life that offers you monthly digital history activity kits that let you try at home the history you learn about on the show. They work like science labs for history. Stay tuned after the episode for even more details.
1: Hi, I'm Jen Bloomfield author of Shakespeare and the Psalms Ministry, Did Shakespeare Help Write the King James Bible? and professor at the University of Nottingham. Another great method for studying William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. She did a hunting, type of hunting called Bow and Stable, where basically she would be on a platform and they would drive the game in front of her and she would you know, casually shoot at the deer while her, she had musicians playing and her courtiers waiting on her.
2: And now, here's Cassidy. In Elizabethan
0: England, the queen, immortalized in woodcuts, show her fondness for the sport of hawking. By the time James I comes to the throne in 1603, hawking as a form of hunting for royals has been surpassed in popularity by a form called par force, where animals like dogs and horses are used to round up prey. While the practical aspect of hunting animals for meat was utilized in these hunting expeditions, arguably the primary function of going hunting was to establish yourself as a member of the higher order of social status and to network with powerful political connections that might advance your station. In her paper, He Cannot Be a Gentleman Which Loveth Not Hawking and Hunting, our guest, Karen Kaiser Lee, writes about the popularity of hunting par force under James I and explores the specific hunting treatises that were written during his reign to both define the methods of hunting as well as regulate what kinds of people were allowed to hunt in this particular way. Karen joins us today to take us inside the world of early modern hunting to look at who was allowed to hunt, what they used when they were hunting par force. And how it helped usher in a new era in English history where a person could move upward in society if they were disciplined enough to learn a new and important skill. Karen Kaiser-Lee is an assistant professor and the director of the writing program at St. Xavier University in Chicago, Illinois, where she teaches writing courses such as study of rhetoric and writing in digital environments. She began her study of Renaissance hunting texts as part of her involvement in the Society for Creative Anachronism. Her interest was piqued when the organization began incorporating dog coursing as an activity graduate study in rhetoric allowed her to study these historic texts in depth her master's thesis describes how renaissance hunting manuals doubled as instructions to help the nouveau riche of the period enter the upper echelons of society her other research projects have included how english travel narratives describe women of other cultures karen has presented her research at the international congress on medieval studies find out more about karen and her research in the show notes for today's episode hello karen welcome to the show Hi, thank you so much for having me. I've seen Woodcuts featuring Elizabeth I going hawking, and there always seems to be a great group with her on these endeavors. When royalty went hunting, was it for the practical purpose of of bringing back game? Was that the point, or was this a show for something else?
1: Oh, it was definitely entertainment. I think the food at the end was a nice bonus that that they could bring home. But the real thing was the, the production, the activity of hunting. Um, you're absolutely right. There's these fascinating woodcuts of her. There's one I'm thinking of in particular where she's sitting in the ground, and it's clearly they're having a picnic. And it's actually a picnic before the hunt. She uh, did enjoy hunting. She did a, a hunting type of hunting called Bow and Stable where basically she would be on a platform and they would drive the game in front of her and she would casually shoot at the deer while she had musicians playing and her courtiers waiting on her. It's, it seems so different than what I think of, or when I first started thinking about hunting, Uh, it's, it's definitely an entertainment, Um, lots of people involved You had a lot of uh, huntsmen and, and again, courtiers uh, attending her. It was fun. It was a party.
0: Among the many changes that arrived in England with the death of Elizabeth I and the rise of James was the very different ways the two monarchs hunted for game. James was a big fan of par force hunting, and that was different from what Elizabeth had done. Karen, how was par force hunting different from Elizabeth's version of pursuing game?
1: No, he didn't actually introduce par force hunting. Uh, That had been around for quite a long time. It it came to, uh, it's like European high medieval hunting. A lot of the terms are French. So we assume that a lot of the stuff came from the continent, from France. Um, So when when I described uh, Elizabeth Bowen's stable hunting, where they just kind of drove the game in front of her, He was mainly into par force hunting, which meant hunting through force of dogs. So he would get up, bring his courtiers with him, bring a bunch of dogs, and they'd go out into the hunting park and and drive the game in a specific way. And it was like this hyper-masculine, very much common, and everyone knew what he was doing. Uh, but whereas Elizabeth might have been a little bit more laid back and kind of waiting for the game to be driven in front of her, he was out there very aggressively hunting, driving the game. And in fact, he hunted so much that his his advisors were were concerned. They're like, "You're you're spending a little bit too much time out in the field and less time governing." And he had to kind of you know come back at them and say, "Well, this is what I want to do. I'm king."
0: Specific to James's reign was an institution of regulations on exactly what kind of social status was allowed to hunt par force. Karen, what did James decide were the social requirements for being permitted to hunt in this way?
1: He decided that uh, there needed to be regulations with regards to how much property, how much land they owned, how much goods or how much money they had. It's it's really interesting to me because it's like a, hunting laws are like sumptuary laws, and during the time of Elizabeth, it was so common to violate sumptuary laws that Parliament just decided around 1603 to pretty much get rid of them. And then James comes about the same time or a year or so afterwards, and he's like, "No, I want you to you know start these laws regulating who can hunt." So it's uh, and at the same time, there uh, he's giving out these titles, right? The carpet knights. Um, He's doling out these titles, selling titles, uh, which would entitle, in theory, people to go out and hunt this certain way. But then he's like, no, I'm going to ratchet this down. So it's this bizarre kind of anxiety he's showing about, yes, I'm doling out and selling these titles, but I I don't want everyone to be doing what I'm doing. He he said, I don't want clowns to have access to my sport. So uh, it was basically, you had to be more wealthy, uh, own a certain amount of land, and, and have a certain amount of, of cash on hand.
0: Knowledge of hunting and correct hunting terms shows up in Shakespeare's Love, Labors, Lost, when Holofernes corrects Nathaniel on his identification of a deer. Karen, what does this scene tell us about the importance of being skilled in hunting for someone that wanted to advance their social status?
1: Oh, it shows that it's it's very important to know the, the language. I kind of think of it as a, a shibboleth. If you can't talk the talk, if you can't use the correct French-influenced terms for animals and, and the, the stages of a hunt, then you're clearly showing yourself a, a fool as someone that doesn't belong. And I think it's interesting that it's in Shakespeare. So, you know, Shakespeare's audience would have been at least somewhat familiar with the terms and, and familiar enough to know you know, how he's doing something wrong. And then of course the upper classes would, would clearly be in on the joke and know exactly how that, that person is misusing a term.
0: After someone met the necessary requirements socially, where did someone who wanted to hunt par force go to participate in this sport? Were there specialized locations set aside for this kind of hunting?
1: Yes, there were, um, Hunting parks owned by the aristocracy, uh, and again, that being able to own enough land, uh, having the wealth to have the stocked hunting park on your property was very important. Um, so you could host nobility, uh, these host these uh, grand par force hunts. So you, and it wasn't a park in the public sense. It was like an owned private park. I like to think of hunting uh, like golf is today. I mean, when people play golf today, they they uh, have to be in a club, right? They have to be have a club membership or know someone who is. They have to be invited. They have to know the language. They have to know how to use the tools of of golf, and they have to know the terms like bogeys and birdies. And I see a lot of similarities between the two. And I think a lot of the same things were happening on a golf course in terms of networking. They didn't think of it as networking, of course, in the Renaissance time, but they were making connections and improving their lot in life.
0: When hunting par force specifically, what was the weapon of choice against the animal being hunted? Was it always done in this large group or would individuals go hunting on their own separate from a group?
1: Well, the grand royal par force hunt was always done in a in a large group, and the weapons. It's really interesting that you ask that. Some of the contemporary to Elizabeth manuals on hunting don't spend a lot of time talking about weapons. They they talk about um, uh, kind of social, the social niceties of the hunt and how to how to treat the the most important person in the in the hunting party. But in general, they were using uh, crossbows and a bow and arrow and, and spear for this hunt. And a from force hunt, they were hunting stag. They were hunting deer in large numbers. Now, there would, of course, be smaller hunting parties, and they could hunt smaller game rabbits, fox, wolves. And then they would use accordingly their different sorts of weapons. Uh, but it's it's interesting to me, uh, you ask that question, because they don't talk a lot about the weaponry and the actual kill so much as at least these contemporary to Elizabeth books, they they talk more about the, the social niceties and they do talk about the prey and the types of prey, but the actual killing, they don't, it's interesting, they don't spend a lot of time talking about the weaponry.
0: During Shakespeare's lifetime, society saw what Karen calls, quote, permeability end quote, in social structure, meaning it became possible for individuals to defy the station into which they were born and through knowledge of specialized skills like hunting par force to advance their social status and move into the upper echelons of society. To make this easier to do, specific manuals were written to welcome newcomers to the upper echelons and educate them on the ways of the new social status. These manuals were called treatises and there were several written on hunting. Karen, what were the main manuals someone would Reference if they wanted to advance their station through a knowledge of hunting during Shakespeare's lifetime?
1: The granddaddy of the mall that I think of is the uh, La Libre de Chasse, pardon my terrible French, Uh, the book of the hunt, which was written in uh, about 1389 by Gaston Phoebus, the the Comte de Foix over in in France. Uh, He called himself Phoebus because he had long blonde hair and he was basically nicknaming himself after Apollo. Um, so it kind of tells you what the big personality this guy was. And he was a very well-known hunter. Uh, and his book is very thorough. He, he talks about all stratuses of hunting, not just the par force hunt, but he talks about hunting for the, the lower classes, hunting with nets, which the nobility would never do, of course. In the Gaston Phoebus uh, manuscript, there's this wonderful mm-hmm. scene. It's the lord of the hunt uh, being brought basically deer poop.
0: No, why is he brought
1: deer poop? (laughs) Because the way that they would track, they would track deer. And one thing they would use is the deer's poop, the spore. And so there's this, uh, there's this table spread. He's basically having breakfast outside and his huntsmen are gathered uh, around him. And there you can see the poop. It's just like these little, you know, hard deer poops. Yeah.
0: Just displayed out there on the table. And like, Just here you go.
1: (laughs) My Lord, here's the deer poop. (laughs) That's such a formal.
0: I mean, I think about hunters, they do that. You know, they look for scat when they're out. Not that I'm any expert in hunting. I'm totally basing this off of TV, but they look for scat. I would just think that's highly formalized, like display it here for you. Let's yeah.
1: Yeah. You can, you can clearly see it in the illumination. It's like, uh, there's, there's the deer poop right next to someone's oatmeal.
0: Uh, Oh, that's so disgusting.
1: (laughs) And so this book uh, survived as a copy of facsimile, and that wound up in the hands of Edward, uh, Edward of York, who uh, wrote his translation, which is called The Master of Game. And The Master of Game is very much uh, based on Gaston Phoebus's book. He eliminates some prey that were not common in England. He eliminates prey that were not common in England, like reindeer. And then he adds a few chapters that were specific to English hunting. And so Master of Game was known and circulated uh, and in time uh, kind of copied, which which I'll talk about in a couple minutes. After that, well, there was something called the Book of St. Albans. It was published in the late 1400s originally. It's kind of like a commonplace book written by a, a woman who was probably a, a prioress at an abbey in St. Albans. Her name was Juliana Berners. Berners? Juliana Berners. Let's just call her Juliana Berners. I like that.
0: I'll go with that. Yeah.
1: Uh, Juliana Berners wrote uh, about the types of falcons. She wrote about hunting with falcons. She wrote about, you know, the basics of hunting. Uh, And one of the things that survives in this book is the idea of the collective noun, like a gaggle of geese. Um, She has this whole collection of these uh, how you would rank and how you would call these different collections of animals. And of course, everyone in England and and elsewhere in Europe are very concerned about rank. And so this is kind of where the idea of, of ranking, uh, animals, uh, that are hunted and animals that you hunt with. Um, after that, there comes uh, a couple of books that are pretty similar to each other. One, uh, uh, called the noble art of venery which was originally published in 1575 by george gascon let's go with that for pronunciation uh, he's a really interesting guy who's constantly trying to ingratiate himself with elizabeth uh, but it was a very in-depth hunting manual um, and this is where those really interesting woodcuts of elizabeth come in and what's also interesting to me is when they printed an edition uh, after James took the throne, they cut Elizabeth out of the woodcuts. If you look real carefully, you can see where they they cut you can see the line where they cut her out and replaced uh, her with james but they 're doing the exact same thing they 're uh, sitting and enjoying that picnic or they 're um, uh, being handed a knife to do the ceremonial cut of the deer, uh, which was the honor of the highest ranking person. So I, I think that's very interesting to me that uh, they just cut her out and it was very thrifty, right? But also interesting because they were doing the same types of hunting. So that's another book that uh, people would be familiar with. It's another Photoshop
0: one, before we had Photoshop. Yeah,
1: yeah, it is interesting. When I was doing my research, I'm like, wait a minute. I've, I've seen this with Elizabeth. What's James doing here? That's exactly what was happening. It was just another edition of a book on uh, the book I got my hands on. And another book is by um, Gervase Markham. He wrote a bunch of different hunting and uh, animal husbandry type books. Uh, he wrote so many books that he had to promise the uh, book publishers of London not to write. He got to a certain point and he's like, I promise I will not write any more books because I'm just writing it all down. But that's the cool thing about uh, this era in England, right? Is that anyone, com- there's no copyright laws. Uh, you can't stop anyone from, copying and publishing things except for Gervase Markham who just could not stop
0: writing who overwhelmed the system and yes (laughs) exactly in her paper he cannot be a gentleman which loveth not hawking and hunting Karen writes that quote poaching was an attractive alternative to dueling which was also prohibited by law end quote Karen was it James or Elizabeth that placed a law against dueling and logistically explain how poaching compared to hunting par force and why would poaching replace the duel really interesting question well it
1: was illegal i believe under both of their reigns poaching must have been really exciting for the nobility they're, it's kind of like they're insulting the the person whose lands they're poaching upon they're they're probably incorporated a lot of the par force hunt rituals but they're doing it very sneakily hunting uh, poaching was kind of militaristic it was kind of uh it was kind of an activity that well you shouldn't really do it but wink wink nudge nudge royals will be royals nobles will do as they see fit and there's some really specific instances elizabeth actually would participated in at least one poaching situation where uh, someone had been uh no, i think his someone's uh, brother or sister got uh, executed so he was uh, this family was kind of struggling and and so elizabeth and lester uh, encroached on their deer park uh kind of like an insult right uh, so they went on this hunting foray and they're saying you know your family's on notice so poaching could also be uh, like a prelude to a duel uh it could be an insult um it could be an insult in that like they're insulting each other and it gets to a point where they, be, they, they poach and then they're like, OK, fine, I'm going to duel you. How dare you kill my deer? So it's this very interesting, um, you know, illegal activity of the of the nobility. They're probably giggling and laughing and thinking about the insult that they're handing out. Kind of this weird militaristic par force hunting, not on the cheap, but I guess it would be par force hunting with a twist a little bit uh, fast and loose and illegal. Did that answer your question
0: well? Yes. Karen writes that in a play contemporary to Shakespeare called The Roaring Girl by Thomas Middleton and Thomas Decker, staged around 1607, live water spaniels are called for by the stage direction, and that the use of water spaniels specifically was due to regulations from the hunting treatises of the time period. Karen, water spaniels are a type of dog, so were dogs also subject to this social order and ranking for these are the best dogs for hunting?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. the uh, The hunting treatises rank and, and compare and list and describe dogs in great detail. And in fact, there was a a book by a, a gentleman named John Caius. It's probably, it sounds very Latin and probably a um, pen name. In 1576, he wrote a treatise called "Of English Dogs." This was kind of my gateway into studying hunting treatises. I, I started getting curious about, well, what kind of dogs did they have back then? Uh, you know, we have the AKC, the Kennel Club. We have these fancy, unusual breeds of dogs. What did they have? You know, finding out that they had water spaniels was an interesting surprise to me. But they, of course, the highest ranked dog was the one that would pursue and pull down deer. And then after that would be uh, the, the dogs that hunted fowl, waterfowl. And then after that, there would be... Uh, you know lower than that i guess it'd be the terriers they don't talk a lot about terriers uh, those are more like i guess european hunting dogs or they're described maybe more in the european text but they definitely they definitely had rank uh, they definitely uh, had their own jobs in, within the hunt just like just like the huntsmen uh the the dogs have their own jobs and they were kind of like today they they had working hunting type dogs
0: I think I'm disillusioned a little bit that the Irish wolfhound that shows up in the Kevin Costner version of Robin Hood in the poaching scene is not actually what they used to hunt with. I think that should be pointed out because that's the film version of poaching in England is always with these giant dogs and water spaniels are actually pretty small. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they would use, um, they had greyhounds or or coursing hounds, uh, dogs that hunted by sight. They had Scent hounds, what we think of as a hound today, dogs that could flush out the prey by by smelling them, by scenting them out, uh, and they did have big. They did have big dogs like the wolfhound as part of the pack, um, and they would probably be used. The point of the par force hunt is to they're wearing down the prey, um, and so they needed a lot of different dogs to uh, you know they had different sorts of stamina. You know, uh, greyhounds or similar hounds. Um, kind of, they're sprinting animals, and you would need stronger dogs to kind of bring up the rear. Uh, also, when you if you're hunting different prey like boar, that's where like a, a hound like an Irish Wolfhound would come would be very handy. If you're hunting bear, or boar, or these bulky type animals that could really hurt you.
0: We've mentioned crossbows and bow and arrow, as well as hawks and dogs, to be the weapons we're using for hunting. But, Karen, what other forms, methods, or even animals for hunting are outlined in these treatises? We know guns were present in Tudor and Jacobean England, for example, but it doesn't sound like guns were used for hunting yet at this point.
1: Yeah, I think this is largely because par force hunting is this very elaborate it comes to us from the medieval period. So it's very stratified. It's not really, I wouldn't call it a parody of hunting, but it's, it's this very elaborate social activity that doesn't really resemble the day to day hunting that people probably did to put food on the table. So I think that's why there's a a lack of uh, describing, you know, how to, how to shoot something, how to use the weapon, uh, and I think they largely stuck to spears, bows, arrows, crossbows, you know these older fashioned uh, weapons and we know that the guns of the time were very uh likely to to blow your own hand off right from what my understanding
0: is <laughs> not not um, necessarily practical when chasing a deer <laughs> sure exactly it's easier to
1: go with the simpler stuff, so these hunting manuals they did most of their time was spent on this this higher class elaborate part force. Hunting ritual, but they did also spend some time. As I mentioned, the Gaston Phoebus treatise talks about um, hunting with nets and traps. And of course, our author Gaston is very clear about, you know, looking down his nose at this type of hunting, but he's still he's just so passionate about hunting that he um uh, he he documents all types of hunting. And he even spent some time talking about the health benefits of hunting, which all throughout history, when you read about when you read these hunting manuals from ancient Greece on they 're talking about oh it 's good exercise, it helps you train for war you 're out there um, out in nature and you 're breathing the fresh air and it, i think it's it 's very interesting they have all these justifications for that so it does describe all different kinds of hunting the lower class hunting um, and again, prey was very largely stratified, and of course they 'd go hunting for rabbit because I guess. Rabbit is delicious, so so I'm told. Haven't Uh, tried it
0: myself, so I can't say. I
1: I had a cat that I used to have to uh, buy rabbit for, like frozen frozen cat food made of rabbit. Uh, So she loved it. Uh, Anyhow, um, you know they would clearly go out uh, on all levels of society. They'd go out hunting rabbit or um, ducks or or what have you. So they needed to know how to do it. But clearly the the emphasis is on, let's fit in with the nobility. Let's learn how to do this fancy par force hunt.
0: Well, I know we would love to explore this topic further. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to explore this further?
1: There are a lot of copies uh, online of the of Gaston Phoebus's book. It's just so beautifully illustrated. And I linked to that. I sent you the link to to an online version. You can buy a used copy um, fairly affordably too. It's a it's got an English. I wouldn't call it a translation, but uh, it, it does kind of encapsulate Gaston Phoebus's work. So there's also um, Ed Edwards' uh, book has also been translated, and that's that's readily available. Uh, you can also find facsimiles of uh, the. The noble art of venery which is the Elizabethan treatise so there's there's a there's a bunch of stuff also the hound and the hawk is a really good book uh, it's very thorough and very enjoyable a very enjoyable read
0: we will link to these titles in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to find those. And it's also useful if some of these Elizabethan and Jacobean words like Phoebus's last name or the mm. word Venery, if you're not used to spelling those, we will have it all spelled properly for you out in the show notes. So you can just click to, to find those. So make sure you go there to see that list. Now, Karen, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those.
1: So I'm really behind in reading for pleasure, so I'm going to use this opportunity to get caught up on my pleasure reading, and I'm going to read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. I love that TV show. I've got a copy of the book. I love the idea of mixing Jane Austen's social commentary with Tolkien, with magic. I just have not gotten a chance to read this book, so I'm going to think of being stranded on an island as a vacation. And I'm going to read that book.
0: There you go. Well, that sounds like an excellent selection. You'll be nicely set up and using your deserted island time productively, I might add.
1: Yeah, getting caught up in that
0: pleasure reading. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, a lot
1: of my bread and butter is in managing my university's writing program. I have a PhD in rhetoric and composition, and so a lot of my time and my expertise is used in the teaching of writing and the planning of the teaching of writing. But I'm really interested, once again, in the idea of sprezzatura, which I I touch on a little bit in my my master's thesis. And uh, this is an Italian concept. It's basically the art of making something difficult look easy. And the example, I was watching a TV show recently set in contemporary Venice, and this um, nicely but not overly nicely dressed Italian man, he's on a moving boat. The boat is just barely starting to stop. And he just with such grace and ease steps off the boat onto land. And you only notice it you don't really notice it. That's the thing. You don't unless you start thinking about, "Hey, that's actually kind of a difficult thing to do." So this is a very Italian notion, right? And it shows up, I think, in the the courtesy books and the hunting manuals. And the English kind of overlook it. They translate the the word differently. They translate the word sprezzatura to be reckless. Uh, and so I'm still very interested in this idea, and I want to I want to start writing. I want to write something more about sprezzatura. Another interesting thing about Sprezzatura is an uh, in Instagram. Uh, it's a hashtag. And I think it basically means to people today, you know, being fashionable. So that's a lot for me to unpack. And I, I would
0: I, expect it to come with that. You know, I woke up this way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I yeah just, that's exactly the point I, I, I think I'm this. going to wind up be making. It's just like, you know, just kind of shrugging things off and uh, making something difficult look easy. And that's kind of how hunting is supposed to be. You're supposed to be, gracefully jumping on your horse and gracefully following this, this deer. It's really, so that's my, that's my goal. That's well, my Well, that
0: sounds point. fascinating. That sounds like a great topic. Karen Kaiser-Lee, thank you so much for being here today and going over early modern hunting treatises with us. We have loved taking a look at Parforce and all the different ways that you can effortlessly hunt deer, boar, and bear. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you being here. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. Find links to more information on early modern hunting, all packed into the show notes for today's episode. Inside the show notes, you'll find links to the hunting treatises that survive, manuals that you can still read online, along with links to Karen Kaiser-Lee and her research. There's also a free history guide on early modern par force hunting, all packed into the show notes. Find that at CassidyCash.com slash episode 156. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 156. Don't forget that the video version of our show is streaming right now on YouTube, completely free. You can watch that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you like video content for our show, then make sure you check out the digital streaming app for That Shakespeare Life. We have animated plays, bonus interviews, documentaries, and more all packed into the membership area for our show. Members get the digital streaming app along with monthly history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare. Join us inside as we cook, play, and create our way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and download that app at CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life.